Uh, next week, I'm going to begin a new series in here on Wednesday nights, and let me say a word about that. Uh, about eight or nine years ago now, and by the way, what we're going to do isn't simply going to be a repeat of that, because the entire preacher does something again. He's got new resources and new study on it and new insights and all that. But we did a series a number of years ago on First and Second Kings because what people struggle with as they begin their daily Bible reading plans at the beginning of a new year They'll, they'll get into the historical books on the kings and so forth, and then the kingdom gets divided. Then you got this king and ruler over the northern kingdom and prophets to the northern kingdom. You've got kings and rulers over the southern kingdom and prophets that go to the southern kingdom, and people get all disjointed, and they get confused, and they'll say, such and such happened in Israel. No, that actually happened in Judah. Well, what's the difference? I thought they were the same. Well, they were until they divided. People just get all twisted up. And so we're going to go through those books again because I know back when we went through them, uh, I specifically remember people coming to me. Earl Holloman was one of them and said, you know what? Now so much of the Old Testament makes sense. I, I, I know where to put things now. Finally, he said, it's probably the best study I've ever had. Now I can read my, New Te uh, my Old Testament and see where things fit and who goes with what. So we're going to begin looking at that uh, next week. The good, the bad, and the ugly of leaders and national politics. So that's what we'll see. Well, that and that, <laughs> yeah. So uh, come prepared to jump into that study next week. Tonight I want you to find John chapter 4, and we're going to begin, begin reading at verse 7. And I want to talk to you about something tonight that I trust will be a priority in your life uh, this year. And that there will be a renewed priority to this. We're going to talk tonight about life's greatest priority and privilege, and we're going to speak about worship. Uh, verse 7 of John 4 says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. 
The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. And now pick up in verse 19, because we're really going to concentrate on verses 19 through 24. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. I read uh, the statement of one writer. Uh, this one writer, he said, My sister has, has just bought a new car. And it's a newfangled car. with It's a luxury car with all these buttons and bells and whistles and all these features. And he said she really got it out of whack because she thought she was cutting on her windshield wipers and instead she was disconnecting her car's GPS system. And it told her what she needed to do to get it going again properly. And I've never heard this before, but uh, in the car manual, she went home and read the car manual, and it said, first of all, what you need to do is get in the car and uh, make sure the compass is disengaged, and then you need to drive your car in a 360-degree circle. And you need to end it pointing north. And when you're pointing north and you've gone 360 degrees in a circle, then hit your compass again and reset it. And your GPS system will be ready to go again. I've never heard such. You know, each time we gather to worship, we're resetting our internal compass, right? We establish true north in our soul, remembering who God is and that He's worthy of our worship. And we're reminded of what He's done for us and how He's called us to be His people. We're reminded of all of these things in worship. And you know, when we talk about worship, the Bible has so much to say about the topic. Uh, for instance, the scripture says that in order to truly worship, we need to have clean hands and a pure heart if we're going to worship God. Meaning we've got to deal with sin. We've got to bring our sin to Christ and be cleansed of it. And we've got to come into his presence with a pure heart and, and, and clean hands. 
And you know, that means we need to constantly do some reflection in our lives, don't we? We need to have a soul checkup, don't we? But what else? Well, I want you to see several things tonight, and uh, don't just run with any one of these. Let's, we'll cover each point and look at them all together, too. Uh, I want you to see what, what Christ said, uh, first of all, though, here about uh, principles of worship in verses 20 and 21, that worship is not confined to a single place. Not confined to a single place. Now, between the Jews and the Samaritans, there was, there was great variance as to the place of worship. Now, you'll recall King David greatly desired to build a temple for the Lord in Jerusalem. And God did not allow David to have this task, but he said, your son Solomon will have this task. And we read all about the building of the temple and the dedication of the temple in places like 1 and 2 Chronicles. But sadly, however, we know that Solomon's temple was destroyed by who? By the Babylonians, exactly. And then after the exile, the rebuilt temple had none of the former glory of Solomon's temple. And the people who remembered Solomon's temple were kind of upset when they saw the rebuilt temple just didn't seem to be the same. Now, not long after it was rebuilt, Manasseh, the son of the high priest Jehoiada, and brother of the high priest Jonathan, married the daughter of Sanballat. Sanballat was the Persian, excuse me, I'll get my words out, the Persian governor of <laughs> Samaria. You remember in the book of Nehemiah the, the difficulty some of these neighbors gave, including Sam Ballot, gave to Nehemiah and the group rebuilding. Well, again, he married the daughter of Sam Ballot. And the governor of Jerusalem ordered him to dissolve this marriage, which had all the marks of being unequally yoked, but Manasseh refused to do so. Well, he was then thrown out of Jerusalem by Nehemiah when Nehemiah went back to help the city rebuild. But that wasn't the end of the story. Manasseh's father-in-law, Sambalat, made Manasseh high priest of the Samaritans and arranged to build a temple for him where? On Mount Gerizim. And the Samaritans were quite happy to have their own temple and place of worship on Mount Gerizim. Now, after all, this was an area that had factored into the Old Testament very prominently. Uh, Shechem was a neighboring city right next door, and it was associated with Abraham and Jacob and Joseph. Uh, Shechem was the site of one of the cities of refuge that people could run to until their murder case had gotten worked out, whether they were really guilty or not. The, the family of the person deceased you know, could come after them and take vengeance unless they ran to a city of refuge until things got straightened out. 
Shechem was one of those cities. Uh, here is also where the children of Israel rehearsed the law's blessings and curses right after they entered the promised land. And here's also where Joshua gave his challenge to the tribes. And we remember his immortal words. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So that's some of the history of this place. And the Samaritans were, were proud of that history. But then they went on to add a lot of superstition to Mount Gerizim as well. They said that the Garden of Eden had been located there at Mount Gerizim. They said it was from the dust of Gerizim that God had created Adam. And they also said that it was on Mount Gerizim that Noah's Ark had come to rest and also where Abraham had sacrificed Isaac. And then finally they said it was where Abraham had met with Melchizedek and and where Jacob had seen his vision of the ladder reaching between heaven and earth. Now, all of these claims were claims without any type of basis in fact. And you can show how many of those claims are even just outright false and historically wrong. But in their minds, the Samaritans were quite fond of Mount Gerizim. Now, of course, we could heap, we could see in the Bible too, we could heap all kinds of accolades on Jerusalem. And so between the Jews and the Samaritans, there was a whole bunch of competition about what was the true place of worship. And I want you to notice how Jesus quickly cuts through all of this talk of the right place to worship. And he refers to the hour that is coming when geography will have no bearing on worship whatsoever. In Christ, worship, true genuine worship, is not dictated by a place. Because when Jesus died on the cross, what was torn in two? The veil. And there's a powerful message in that, right? In the Old Testament, remember you had to go to the temple three times a year, the Jewish males. And, and of course, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, and there he offered the blood of the animal sacrifice, and God's wrath against sin was held off for yet another year. But in the death of Jesus for sin, we don't need another sacrifice for sin. The price for sin has forever been paid. And that's why Christ said from the cross, to tell us that it is finished. We don't have to go to a temple in Jerusalem. Because, by the way, that was destroyed when? What year? 70 AD. We don't have to wait on a temple to be rebuilt and then, then say we're going to go and offer animal sacrifices and and have some kind of high priest carry these before God. Jesus has done all of that for us. He's our high priest forever. And he's opened the way into God's presence for us. 
The book of Hebrews goes on and on to talk about this. So does Paul in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 5, for instance. And all of this means that you can commune with God in the privacy of your study at home or kneeling by your bedside. You can commune with God even at on a lake or golf course, though I seriously doubt people do. Uh, but any place can be a place of worship. The Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. But now remember, there's also commands in the Bible that we are to worship corporately. We have responsibilities to the body of Christ. But the point remains, worship doesn't have to be limited to just one specific place. Now think of how freeing that is for you and me today. You and I don't have to take a long, long journey to a temple far, far away. And that's free. That God is not only available at a certain place. It's also powerful. Think about it. If I had to go to a place, to a specific place to meet with God then that would mean as long as I was not in that place, in some sense, I would be shut out from the presence of God, right? But because worship is not dependent on a place, I can commune with God everywhere. I can be in the presence of God everywhere, and He's with me, He's with you. That's what Christ has done for us. That's the beauty of the new covenant and what we have in Christ. But again, there's a flip side to all of this. Um, if you don't know Christ, you are still shut out from the presence of God, right? If you don't have a personal relationship with Christ or somebody in your family doesn't, they're essentially shut out from the presence. John 14, 6, what did Jesus say? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And so people without Christ, they need to come to Christ if they're going to go into the presence of the Father and truly worship Him in spirit and in truth. Christ is essential. Now, again, let's look at a different angle still, which I touched on a moment ago. While it means that you don't have to go to a specific place to meet God, you get to go to places like this. You have the opportunity to come to church. Because the imagery in the Bible is we're part of a body of believers. We're the body of Christ. We're one's a hand, one's a foot, another an ear, another an eye. Some have the gift of leadership, some of showing mercy, some of service or helps, some of, uh, of teaching, some of exhortation. On and on we can go with that. While we don't have to have a church home to worship and know God, we are commanded to be a part of a church home. And worship Him, not just individually, but collectively. And the church is not going to be able to, to carry on its mission to the world that God has given us if we're not meeting together collectively as a body also. 
You cut off my right hand right now, and my hand is of absolute no value to my body. It's only of value to my body as long as it's attached. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some. But meet together, encourage one another, pray for one another, uh, exhort one another. He even says, provoke one another to love and good deeds, and all the more as you see the day approaching. These were people in the context of Hebrews 10, by going to church that day, you could lose everything. Some of them, in fact, in the context of Hebrews, some of them were thinking about being done with the church and going back to the temple worship, going back to Judaism because of all the heavy persecution they were under because being identified with the body of Christ, going to church, you could lose your family, you could lose your business, you could be hauled off to prison, your life could be taken. And even in that context, he said, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some. Christianity, in other words, has a corporate flavor to it too and corporate responsibilities. Yes, individual. Nobody else is saved for you and you're not saved for somebody. Nobody gets into heaven on anybody else's coattails. You've got to come to Christ. I've got to come to Christ. And there's individual worship, but in, in Christianity, again, what I'm trying to say is there's this corporate responsibility. And so we get to do this. We have the opportunity to be a part of what God's doing in the world through His church. <clears throat> but again, all of life, all of life, all of your life, everywhere is an occasion for worship. And I hope you do worship privately. You know, if we worship privately in our daily devotions and time with God, that's going to impact our corporate worship when we come together, right? It's going to impact it for the better. Well, a second principle, worship is to be intelligent. Look at what Jesus said in verse 22. In verse 22, he said, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now, by intelligent in this context, I don't mean scholarly. What I do mean, though, is that our minds are to be engaged. One of the characteristics of pagan worship in the Old Testament, and even today in pagan worship, is that the worshiper seeks to have some type of almost an out-of-body type experience. And they have rituals in pagan worship where they try to get the individual so worked up, they, they lose any thought of what they're doing intelligently. And all of this, in some places, creeps into the church today. There was a problem in the church at Corinth. They would get so worked up, some of them were even shouting 
unbelievably, some of them were even shouting. They'd get in such a frenzy in their pagan worship at Corinth that they'd sort of, quote-unquote, Christianized, that they would even shout, Jesus is cursed. And Paul says, you're not going to do that through the power of the Holy Spirit. You're going to do just the opposite. The Holy Spirit draws people to Jesus, magnifies Jesus. The Holy Spirit encourages us in the Word of God to grow and be more like Jesus. All of this frenzied stuff that would cause somebody to do something like that, or like the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, for example, who were cutting and slicing themselves in their worship, that's not the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the work of demon spirits. Folks, God is not a God of chaos and confusion. And that's why Paul said what he did to the Corinthians about tongues. He said, if you speak in an unknown tongue in the church, who's going to understand you? And if they don't understand you, they can't be edified and encouraged. And he went on to say, I'd rather speak five words that can be understood than 10,000 that can't be understood. I've even heard of charismatic churches, and it's not a slam on them. There's some good stuff they do. People talk about experiences they had in the charismatic church where the pastor would say, just lead the congregation. If you want to learn to speak in tongues, just let's just all kind of start babbling, babbling together. That's nonsense. I like what Dr. Willis used, I like what he used to say about that. That's voodoo religion. That's not Christianity. Worship is to be intelligent. Our minds are engaged. We know what we're doing. We know who we're worshiping. We're knowing, we're learning who he is and what he's done for us. The mind's engaged in it. A third principle, worship is to be focused on God. Verse 23 and 24. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now there's the implication in these verses by saying true worshipers, there are some people who may show up at worship and they're not true worshipers at all. They're false worshipers. You know, you hear some people that come to church just to socialize. Anything wrong with fellowship? Absolutely not. That's one of the key purposes of the church. But that's not everything that worship is about. Some might come for business contacts. Some because a husband or a wife expects them to come. There are some that come because they want their kids to have the experience of church even though they don't much care at all for it. There's all kinds of motives and reasons People show up at church. But Jesus said that true worshipers worship the Father. They desire communion with God. Jesus said in the Beatitudes, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. True worshipers come to worship the Father. 
What is worship? Well, the old English word really captures the meaning of this word here. It just simply means to ascribe worth. We come to praise God, to ascribe worth to Him. Why? Because He's worthy. Folks, He's the one who created us. He's given us life and being and everything that we have. We're nothing without Him. He saves us and sustains us. We come to glorify Him because of who He is. He's our Father. He's not just out there and unknowable. He's our Father who has come to us chiefly in His Son, Christ. And so we want to worship Him. We come with that desire. We come to worship in spirit. We're body, soul, and spirit. Think about the body. Some people think they, they have worshipped if they go to a service and everybody is just jumping around, a lot of movement, a lot of hand raising and clapping. Now, again, don't misunderstand. There's nothing wrong with loving God with your body and worship involving the body. The, the Psalms are filled with, with commands to shout to the Lord and to clap. Nothing's more discouraging than for a preacher to preach his heart out people just there. <laughs> You can see when somebody's worshiping with their body, nodding in agreement, <laughs> clapping at appropriate times, maybe. Just as long as they're not clapping for a singer or you know, a preacher like it's entertainment or something. But if it's an expression of praise and thanksgiving to God, nothing wrong with that. Charles Page. First Baptist of Charlotte, of course, he's passed away now. He used to say, you know, some people come to worship and they look like they've been ra uh, uh, raised on dill pickles and weaned and had a relapse or something. <laughs> worship, worship involves the body. We have a soul, the seat of our emotions. Some people don't feel like they've been to worship unless they've been raised to the mountaintop with laughter and then they've been crushed down into the valley with tears. Some people feel like there's got to be a lot of emotion in a service for them it, it, to feel like they've been to church or not. They want to laugh and cry and hug. And the value of a worship service is based on how much of that there is. Anything wrong with emotions? No. But again, you can't measure a worship service by that. Emotions are great, but they're not always there. He says, worship in spirit and in truth, the deepest part of the core of our being. We worship God. Whether it involves the movement of our body or not, whether it involves the stirring of our emotions or not, worship is to touch us, touch us on the inside at the deepest level. That's what true worship is about. You see, Judaism was just a religion of the letter. You went to the temple, you did this, you did that. Some people go to church today and just a liturgy, check it off. You do this, you do that. Uh, anything wrong with liturgy? No. It, a liturgy can be used as a tool to help people worship. But if they're just going and doing things like a checklist, they've not necessarily worshipped. Worships in spirit and in truth touches your inmost being and it changes 
the way you are and how you live. Folks, true worship alters your life. It changes you. And if somebody comes to church every week, week in and week out, and they're still living an immoral life, their speech is filthy, they cheat in life with every chance they get, something's wrong with their worship. You can't go into the presence of God and continue to live in sin week in and week out and be satisfied about that. True worshipers worship the Father in spirit. They also worship the Father, Jesus said, in truth. Folks, God is a God of truth. You, you can't believe anything and everything about God and be a true worshiper. God has revealed who He is in the Word of God. And we worship Him based on who He has revealed in His Word that He is. The Samaritans rejected most of the Old Testament. In fact, they only accepted the first five books of the Bible. Much of the Old Testament, most of it, they rejected. There are people today that want to reject all sorts of portions of the Word of God. You know, I'll take that, I'll take this. No, I don't want that. I want, you know, and they, they kind of want to have a designer religion and designer God. And I'll, I'll worship whatever God I think my mind wants Him to be. That's not worshiping God in spirit and in truth. That's idolatry. In Japan, you can go into a Buddhist temple known as the Temple of a Thousand Buddhas. I've never seen it, but supposedly they have every form and shape and color and style of a Buddha imaginable. And the point is... Pick one that you like and worship that. Pick the one that suits what you like. It, you know, to the Buddhist. Pick the Buddha that represents what you want him to be. And there are Christians like that. They want to design God into being what they want him to be. And they'll say something like, oh, my God would never judge anybody. Oh, really? Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That sounds like judgment to me. James said to his people, the judge is standing right at the door. You'll hear people say things like, my God would never send anybody to hell. And on and on they'll go, my God would never do this. He does that. Who's their God? Are they worshiping according to spirit and truth, how God has revealed Himself in His Word. Because it's in His Word that we learn who He is and what He's done. So the Bible goes hand in hand with our worship. If we're going to worship God in truth. Again, it's not, worship is not based on a place. We have the opportunity of worshiping wherever we are. But then, yes, we should find ourselves 
going to a body of Christ, a church and worshiping collectively. Worships to be intelligent. And worships to be in spirit and in truth. Jesus said that's what true worship is about. I want you to notice a discussion here that Jesus didn't even get into. Ironically, in all the division today over worship, so many people today are focused in on things about worship at, at their church that's not even discussed in the Bible. They want to focus in on maybe just preferences. Things like music and instruments. Jesus didn't even comment on that here. What matters is to ask the question, is it God-centered? Does it exalt the name of Christ? Is it biblical? That's the proper focus. We all have different preferences. That's why the Bible says in Ephesians, sing to one another in hymns, psalms, and spiritual songs. It doesn't just say sing in hymns. It doesn't just say sing in psalms. It doesn't just say sing in spiritual songs. The idea is that there's a wonderful variety here that can be utilized but whatever the style or preference is or the variety, it needs to reflect truth of who he is. Don't make preference the focus. That can end up having a form of its own idolatry. Christ is to be the focus. Christ. I want you to see tonight that God desires worship. Jesus closes this teaching by saying that the Father seeks true worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. Folks, think about it. God delights to commune with His people. Is that not just amazing to think about? The God of this universe, holy, 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 Holy is the Lord God Almighty is what the seraphim were, were saying as they were going around God in that vision of Isaiah. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This holy God desires to commune with His people. His people who have been cleansed and saved and can come into His presence through Christ. He desires communion with us and desires our worship. He's worthy of our worship. Think of the arrogance of people going through life who don't give God any time, who don't worship Him. I mean, they're taking the gift of life that God's given them, all the blessings that God's the common grace that God gives to everybody, the, the sun and the, and the rain and all the provision. They take all of that. And they never worship God who gave it all. Think of the arrogance in that. God desires communion with you and with me, and with his church. We have the opportunity. Our worship shouldn't be looked at as just a, a drudgery, or, or let's go and get this done and over with. 
Folks, there, again, there's something life-changing about it. Worshiping God, knowing Him, and how God takes His Word, His Holy Spirit takes His Word and conforms us more and more to the image of Christ. There ought to be a delight and a joy among those who profess to know Christ. There ought to be a delight and a joy to finding the people of God where they're meeting and going to worship. We have no excuse. And Jesus has made it possible because He's opened the way into the presence of God. Without Christ, what He's done at the cross there'd be no way into the Father's presence. Christ has opened the way. So there's no excuse. <clears throat> Keep worship about God. Whether you're moved to clap or not, raise your hand or not, say amen or not, whether you laugh or cry, or whether you don't, keep worship Christ-centered. Keep it biblical. Always remember you can't make a God to your own liking. Worship Him as He's revealed Himself. And then render your life to Him as a living sacrifice. Just a few things here we, we can say about worship from John 4. Just scratching the surface. Any comments before we go to the Lord in prayer? I find it interesting. John 14, 6. We discussed it, I think, a little bit last week. <clears throat> to your knowledge, has any other religious leader ever made a statement has it come out of the mouths of Buddha or out of uh, anybody else? Well, there have been, the, even in the first century, uh, the discussion, the unbelievers, the religious leaders had about the apostles and Gamaliel's advice to them. There were many who had claimed to be messiahs and made false claims. And that's why Gamaliel was saying, you know, don't worry about this group. If Jesus isn't real or whatever, you know, it'll fade like the others because many have come on the scene claiming to be messiahs. But if he really is who they say he is, then you'd, be, you'd find yourself fighting against God. So let these men be. So I mean, even from Gamaliel's words and in the early chapters of the book of Acts, yeah, there have been plenty who have claimed to be messiahs. It just seems like it's hard to find. Maybe I haven't looked enough, but to me it just seems like there is no other entity in the universe that can make that claim. Right. And of course I say that as a believing, born-again Christian. Sure. But... 
I just wondered if anybody else anywhere near in position in any religious organization of some type can claim that they are the God of the universe. Mm -hmm. Nobody comes to God but through Him and so forth. I said, that's a pretty strong statement. Oh, sure. you know. and, that's, and that's why C.S. Lewis wrote what he wrote years ago. Uh, and people still use it today in basic apologetics, giving defense for the faith. That Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he's the Lord. And of course, C.S. Lewis argued he's the Lord. But you know, the claims of Christ and what he said about himself, he's either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. Now, one thing distinct, one thing very distinct about Christianity from the world religions you're talk, talking about, religions of the world say to men, do this, do that. And if you do enough of this and that, maybe you'll get into heaven. Uh, Christianity points out that you know, God's the initiator. God's come to us and made the way possible through His Son. And God has offered the sacrifice. And that's, that's very unique among Christianity from the world religions. Right. Well, it just seems like, say, uh, uh, there are so many that would throw out something, you know, sure. either casting aspersions or, sure. or saying, well, you know, really, who's right? And of course, man having this in his DNA, I believe, that he has got to work his way to heaven. Yeah. Uh, that makes them succumb to the various religions of the world because they all seem to have that same innate centrality to it. Uh, you've got to have more rights than wrongs so you can get to heaven. Yeah. Whatever. I think that's just so wonderful that you can walk up to somebody. And, well, it's like the very stark announcements I've seen lately on Fox News. Uh, if you died tonight, would you go to heaven? It just ask it simple, just like that. If you would like to know for sure, call this 800 number. Go to this website. Yeah, because again, the God of the Bible and Christianity, as He has revealed Himself, we can know Him and we can have the assurance that we're going to heaven. And for example, even in Islam, there is no concept of truly knowing Allah, no true concept of love. And no true concept that you can ever really know if you're going to get into paradise or not. You know, you hope you got more checks in the good column than the bad column, you might get in. But, you know, it's again, how Christianity is distinct because of the way God has revealed himself. And that's why worship has to be in truth as well as in spirit. Yeah, it just seems like, you know, why would you want to always have all this doubt? 
sure. and sweating bullets over whether, you know, sure. how do I come out of this final score and all this. And that's why the gospel is good news. It's good news to go to preach to preach to lost men and women. God sent His Son to die for your sins, to reconcile you to Himself. You can be forgiven. I mean, it's, it's a message of good news. Some of us act like we're going out to share something bad or something we need to be ashamed of. No, we're going out to proclaim the best news of all. Anybody else? Um, how would you understand the commitment to honor the Sabbath for us as Christians? And I don't say that I don't have I don't have uh, concrete opinions on that. Sure, I'm somebody that like, I don't have concrete opinions. Right. But the question bothers me because I don't have a concrete opinion. Okay. Does that make sense? Well, we know from the very beginning, the early church, they shifted the day of worship to the first day and called it the Lord's Day. So here were, here were Jews in the early church, even before Gentiles started coming in, who were taught to worship on the Sabbath for centuries. And here's a group of Jews all of a sudden shifting their day of worship from the Sabbath to the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. So we have that pattern from them early on. Yeah, I'm, I'm mostly referring to like how we should because there's different opinions on how you should. Or if, or if, or if Jesus, you know, fills the Sabbath in a certain way so maybe we don't. Does, does that make sense? Like I, I've got, I know people that, you know, They'll hardly leave their house, you know, even if even if their wife's in the next house and she's, you know, deathly sick. Mm-hmm. And I've got, you know, friends that have a much more liberal view. Does, does that make sense? Are Are you talking about friends of yours who still belong to groups that <coughs> worship on the Sabbath, the seventh day, and won't go outside of their home? I'm talking about. I'm just talking about how we honor Sundays. Oh, okay. Strictly, I'm not. I'm not okay. really talking about. I know when I say Sabbath, I'm just. Sure. You know, as Jesus said when they had the discussion about his disciples plucking the corn and so forth as they went the wheat and corn and all through the fields on the Sabbath and how they were attacked for that. Um, And Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man not man for the Sabbath. So it's not that there's this day that we serve as though it's it's something that on a pedestal it's given for us as a day of rest and worship to be renewed and Jesus chastised them for making it this legalistic day that they had to bow down to a day of worship Christians should worship and rest and rejuvenate on that day but does that mean that you 
can't go across town and visit with your family or get out in the front yard and play football with your son. No. Uh, again, the Sabbath was made for me. We need to understand God didn't create us to go 24-7, you know, all hours of the day, seven days a week. And that's why the Sabbath was given to us because we need that data online. And, and it, it's given for us. We weren't given for the day. The day was given for us. And the religious establishment that Jesus confronted about it didn't seem to understand that. They had become a slave to the day to where you couldn't even do something good for somebody on the Sabbath. And Jesus said, if your ox is in the ditch, don't you get it out on the Sabbath? Well, you know, reach out and help people on the Sabbath if they're in need. So, we just, we need to keep in mind that it is a day given to us because we need worship, we need rest, we need that rejuvenation. And by neglecting that as a people and a society, we're paying a high price today. I mean, look at look at what's going on. Stresses and heart attacks and all that. I think some of that ties into the fact that we're going wide open seven days a week and never taking that time as the people of God even to stop and rest and reflect and rejuvenate and worship. It's a gift to us. The day is a gift. We're not a gift to the day. Yeah, I'm not trying. I, I, you know, I'm not trying to, or wasn't trying to split hairs about that. Okay. Uh, but it's just it's a from where we came from before we became members of Pets like a year ago. Right. That was like a very big deal. Does that make sense? Like people would say, you know, if we don't honor, you know, Sundays in a certain way, mm-hmm. then you know, they'll never be. They'll never be. They'll never never be. I have problems with words today. There's not going to be like true revival in America. You understand? Like, they would make statements like that that to me were, as people that I knew to be believers, troubled me. But that I thought, you know, that doesn't, some of those things, they don't quite, you know, hold water for me. And sometimes when people that know more than you <coughs> say things, it's hard to sort those things out if you respect them. Right. So. People become very legalistic about the day. And we're not to do that. But again, we're not to swing to the end of the spectrum of where we ignore it either. I don't know if that settles that discussion. But. It's helpful. <laughs> I would say uh, there's flexibility in this. And not only that, a lot of people work Monday through Friday, so they have time to work on Saturday as well as Sunday in many cases. Sure. You know, so God just wants you to rest. God wants you to be refreshed. God wants you to be renewed, to be spiritually fed. Certainly. And go back at it the next week. You know, uh, that's kind of how I view it. Uh, based on what I read, man isn't created. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, take advantage of and uh, enjoy life, I guess. Well, if they had even broken it down, there was only so far you could walk. And so what they did to that is, um, I'll walk within that distance to your, if I'm trying to get his house, but his house is too far, but your house, 
I'll walk within that distance to your house, spend some time, and then I'll walk that way to his house. They had all their ways of getting around it. You know, they found markers in Jerusalem, <laughs> marking how far, I mean, literal markers. How far they could go. Yeah. yeah. Well, folks, we've got four minutes for our prayer time. <laughs> Good discussion. Good discussion. Not sure we settled it all, but anyway. Good discussion. Um, Cordell, lead our time in prayer, and then I'll call on somebody to close us. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather in your presence tonight to fellowship, to hear your word, to be reminded that worship is of you and for you. We're so thankful that sacrifice that Jesus made for each of us. We lift up all of these folks, Father, that are on the board and even those that are not there, that have needs. You know the needs, you know each and every situation <clears throat> before we even put it up there and mention it. But you tell us, Father, to bring our prayers and petitions before you, and that's what we're doing. We just ask you to touch and work in each and every situation where healing from pain and disease is needed. Touch those folks where discouragement is. Bring encouragement. Bring peace. Bring comfort to them and to those that help them, that care for them in the medical field and the therapy field and on the home. Just be with them, strengthen them, encourage them in the mighty name of Jesus. And we thank you for these things in his name. Father, we thank you that you have given us a day to worship as Christians. We worship on the first day of the week on Sunday in commemoration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're reminded that in Him we have new life. We have eternal life. And Lord, we know that there are countless multitudes about us that as we set aside a day of worship, um, they have no concern about these matters. Um, they don't know you. Many don't even care to know you. So Lord, help us to, as a response to our worship, to go to our friends and family and neighbors and to preach the good news, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, new life in Him, forgiveness of sins, that remind us that it is a message of great news, the best news the world has ever known, that You've made it possible for men to be made right with you and reconciled to you. Father, we have the privilege also as we gather to pray for one another because your people still go through trials because we live in a fallen world. And we know one day we'll be part of the new creation, the new heavens and new earth. And, and all the elements of the fall that are associated with this age won't be present then. But until then, 
we struggle just like our unbelieving neighbors. And so we need the fellowship of believers to strengthen one another, to learn from one another, to pray for one another. So God, I pray that we would be faithful to take that time to be a part of a corporate body, to be faithful to that body. And Father, as we gather to worship, may we always be reminded that we're to worship you in spirit and in truth. We don't worship just whatever type of God we want you to be in the figment of our imagination. We're to worship you based on what we find in your word that you've revealed about yourself. God, I pray that we would not um, deviate into being nothing more than idolaters. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to know that we have brothers and sisters in the Lord and, uh, and that you have opened the way into your throne room. Just such awesome privileges that we have as Christians. Father, I pray for those that in our church family uh, who perhaps don't see the importance. Uh, people even who don't know you. Lord, that you would work in their lives. Lord, I thank you for the discussion tonight. And I thank you that as we look into your word, you have promised that your spirit will be our teacher, that you'll help us. We do pray for these on the board. Uh, you know their needs. You know the very hairs on our head. You know each person's need, even those that didn't speak up tonight. Father, we pray for those who are sick, that you would give their doctors wisdom that they'll treat them in the most effective and efficient way possible. Uh, we pray that they would get the care that they need. Uh, we pray for those in the fellowship fighting COVID. We know that's still a word that instills fear in many hearts and minds. And I just pray that you would surround those people suffering from it with peace. May they know they're in your hands. Uh, we pray for those like Mary Ann and others with upcoming surgeries that you would help their surgeons to see what you already see about their condition that every cut that they make and everything they do internally with these folks would be what their body needs for healing. God, we pray for Matt and Darian as they leave us to, to go to seminary that these would be such rich days of learning for them, uh, for discipleship, being equipped further for ministry. And we look forward to hearing um, the unfolding plans that you have for Matt and Darian. Just watch over their way. And we ask all these things tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.